0: The Farm Advisory Service Podcast Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils,
1: environment, rural business and more Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government
2: Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service Livestock podcast. This podcast is designed to give producers up-to-date information on all things relating to livestock. It's been funded jointly through the Farm Advisory Service Animal Welfare Programme and also the Veterinary Advisory Service. So a big thanks to Scottish Government for their support. So today I'm joined by two well-known voices to this podcast. That's Dr. Lorna McPherson, who's a dairy specialist with SEC's livestock team, and also joined by Colin Mason, who's a veterinary investigation officer and head of SRUC Vet Hub in Dumfries. So hello, Lorna and Colin. How are you both today? Yeah,
1: good. Thank you, Robert. Well,
2: very good. Very good, Robert. Reading to go for our final podcast of 2021. So that's, that's exciting. So firstly, to you, Colin, um, in the vet labs at the moment, what What's happening? What What's keeping you busy at the moment, eh, particularly with a dairy focus as well? Well,
0: I think the the big challenge at the moment probably sits with dairy young stock and uh, respiratory disease. Um, uh, we're seeing a lot of cases through our centres um, and we're well, seeing a lot of pneumonia in general in cattle. But But one of the big... Affected classes of animals will be will be dairy, carbs, and dairy young stock. And uh, you speak to vets as well, and it's it's a lot of cases out there at the moment. Uh, a, a lot of treatments uh, going on as well. So it's a real common problem at the moment.
2: And would you say is this year worse? So I think our I'm noticing our weather is noticeably changeable. So we're getting a hard frost one day followed by 10 or 12 degrees the next day is this year worse than any no, any other year or is this just normal for the time of year
0: I, I think I mean th- this is the most challenging time of year I always think November, December in the, in the run up to Christmas uh, uh, so that's the first thing and also this year it is perhaps worse in that the weather is so changeable um, uh, and um, yeah we're getting those situations where it's a um, couple of days of freezing cold weather, uh, and then you know, really mild again. It's it's you know, it was really cold here last night. It's really mild here during the day. So massive temperature ranges and a lot of really still weather at the moment. I know we've had storms and everything else, but certainly if I if I look to the weather today, it's really still. Uh, a lot of moisture in the atmosphere as well, which just gives us those those perfect conditions for for respiratory disease.
2: Yeah. So if we're assuming, and, and I think all of us, all of us that have got cattle, have, will have had some form of pneumonia issue or, or um, problem in the last few months, what what are the steps we take? So you know, obviously post mortem is a tool, but when we've established what the problem is, what, what is the right approach to take?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think the start point is, I mean, obviously, when you've got cases, you've got to deal with them um, and you've got to deal with them there and then. Uh, uh, and, and so the start point really needs to be with with your vet in terms of what are you going to treat cases with, uh, how are you going to identify cases, uh, and, and just getting all of those basics in place to start off with and, and looking to, you know, what the current health plan is and what the current arrangements are, are, are they working? So, you know, first instances is, is to deal with the problems that, that face you on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, and obviously, there's a range of treatments out there. Uh, most, well, all vets and farmers will will, will have a, a co-working on that in terms of what the first line treatment is. And uh, really, you know, be in discussion with your vet about uh, what treatments you're using are they working are you getting a good response to treatment and and also how are you picking up cases i think that's the other really critical thing is um are are you correctly identifying cases and are you correctly identifying cases early enough so um you know obviously looking at the calf's demeanor uh looking at a calf's milk intakes if it's a pre-weaned calf uh and and critically looking at the calf's temperature um uh, and and rectal temperature to 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 make sure that we know, you know, is it at risk of pneumonia or not? And that's a really, really good guide. Um, uh, Temperatures, really, anything above 39 and a half, um, we're thinking that they may be cases. So use that as a really good guide to whether there is respiratory disease there. And and it's a really simple tool to to check on there.
2: Yeah, and and then obviously, as well, the more time we, the more we think about the, we deal with the individual cases, we deal with the problems that's in front of us this year, but also building that system or, or developing that system so that maybe next year or the year after we're in a, a better position, that the, the system is more resilient to uh, respiratory
0: disease. Uh, absolutely. And I think the thing with that, I mean, there's three levels, I think, to, to view pneumonia and respiratory disease uh in a in a dairy young stock context and and obviously the the most pressing one on a day-to-day basis will be you know animals that are clinically sick um but there's three levels one is what is is the calf mortality rate overall uh and you know how many calves are we actually losing with pneumonia um and you know is that excessive um uh we really want to be not as few as possible clearly but uh, certainly less than five percent mortality was where we would want to be aiming so so what what are we going for there and and how is your farm performing in terms of, of how many calves we're losing in that that early period particularly the first four to eight weeks of life um the second level is what are our treatment rates um and you know there's two things to think about there i would say one is um Are they too high? And indeed, are they too low? I worry a little bit about low treatment rates as well, and I would question, well, what are we missing? Uh, And are we not detecting enough cases of pneumonia? Uh, And obviously, if we've got really, really high treatment rates, uh, that's a concern as well. And treatment rates can range from anything from single figures up to 100%. But you know, one of the things that we need to bear in mind from from some of the sort of studies that have been done on this is, is that roughly between 40 and 50% of carbs uh, will need a treatment for respiratory disease in the pre-weaning period. And, and that's roughly where we are. Uh, if we're lower than that, then good. If we're too low, uh, I would just worry a little bit, are we, are we missing something? Um, so that's some other sort of health planning parameters to think about. And then growth rates is the other one as well because obviously respiratory disease and the consequences of it can have a profound effect on growth rates and so what are we losing growth wise and obviously at this time of year we could be losing growth rate potential just because of temperature and it being cold uh but also you know what may well have a bigger effect would be uh the effects of ill health and particularly respiratory disease work that um one of my colleagues katrina henderson has done has looked at that and pneumonic calms may grow at a rate of around about 0.2 kilos a day really really quite low when we're aiming for 0.7 to 0.8 kilos a day as an average so uh, a pneumonia case can be really quite compromised so there's there's different areas to look at how many are we losing how many are we treating what are the growth rates of of the groups overall and and using those to sort of keep tabs on progress is is really quite important i would say
2: and, and that loss of productivity so that loss of growth rate will be with it for for its whole life will it will affect you well you
0: know, like, yeah and i th- this is the really interesting one i think because a lot of what um what what we see what we see with the growth rates and carbs from Crichton is is that uh you know overall uh to two years old they will catch up and they'll grow at point seven, point eight kilos a day on average uh, right the way through their lifetime so we'll we'll have them carving at, at two years old on average thereabouts maybe just a shade over that um, so they, they they will in some ways catch up um, but what we know increasingly from a lot of the the published work is, is is that the the growth rates in that first eight weeks of life really set the trajectory of how that calf will perform in adult life in that if they get a, a bout of severe illness particularly respiratory disease in the first eight weeks of life and their growth rates are compromised in the first eight weeks of life then we know that they will not perform as well in um, first lactation they're less likely to survive into second lactation and they will be compromised.
2: Yeah, and, and that's why we would Always, or we always hear that the calves are the most valuable group or the most important group on the farm, and and it just shows that the the seeds of of the future are really sown in that calf shed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that vets are doing quite a bit more now is um, using ultrasound to to scan calves' lungs. We can use the same ultrasound scanners that we use for the reproductive rectal work. and it's quite an interesting observation that you get sometimes is just to, you know, look at a pen of calves and scan a pen of calves and, and how many of them actually do have lung damage. Um, and and actually relating that to the number of animals that are actually treated is quite an interesting uh, exercise. And, and it opens up an interesting health planning conversation with, with the vet and the farmer, because, you know, are we, are we picking up the right number of cases? Uh, are, are we... Are we detecting some of these more subtle ones? Uh, and I think that's where, you know, some of the real gains in terms of long-term health and long-term growth rates can be made. So, yeah, at this time of year, to some degree, we're going to be firefighting because we're going to be dealing with the the clinical problems that present ourselves uh, on the ground, but also, you know, thinking about overall performance in terms of treatment rates and growth rates is really important in the wider context.
2: Yeah, excellent. So, Lorna, you deal with a... Crichton a lot you're, you're at Crichton um inv- very involved in the team down there the calf shed at Crichton I find really quite you know, it's quite different to what the conventional calf shed and, and certainly on Aesir farms would be do you want to run us through roughly what what happens in there or what, what the calf shed is all about why it's designed in the way it's designed
1: yeah I can do so it is quite an open shed um it's exposed on all sides Um, So it has got the potential to be quite drafty when uh, it is windy. But we have individual hutches for the newborn calves. So calves stay in the individual hutches for the first seven days just to make sure that they're healthy and they're taking uh, their milk and they're they're drinking well. And then after seven days, they move into a group igloo pen um, with about a maximum of 14 calves per group. So they've got a nice big sort of straw bedded court and then they've got an igloo as well which really gives them shelter from any drafts but they've got a nice open area as well so in times of good weather they've got a nice area where they can loaf about and uh, in those group igloos they are fed on automatic calf feeders.
2: Yeah and in there so at the moment again we're talking about changeable weather earlier and what What are we doing with regards to calf jackets? Are the the calves in jackets just now or are the the jackets off?
1: Um, We don't use calf jackets um, at Crichton, rightly or wrongly. And I think that uh, has been a bit of debate um, for a while. And I think it's still quite a contentious subject. Uh, Some farmers are very set on the use of calf jackets and others are not convinced that they provide a benefit. And to be honest, surprisingly, I think there's actually very little evidence in the scientific literature that calf jackets will significantly improve calf growth rates but I know there was a study done by Harper Adams University which showed that using calf jackets and I think that was just in the first three or four weeks of life uh, did translate into calves that were heavier at weaning so to be honest I think the jury's probably a wee bit out on that but I personally would think in these colder temperatures that we're experiencing at the moment it really would be good practice to use calf jackets, especially on calves in the first three weeks of life, and that 's because we know that any calves under three weeks of age they have a lower critical temperature of fifteen degrees, so any temperatures below that it means that they do need extra energy just to maintain themselves but also just um you know just to support the immune system to help fight infection as well so You know, with these colder temperatures that we're experiencing and, you know, temperatures around freezing at nighttime, these young calves are going to be suffering and it is going to take significantly more energy just to try and maintain them and help support their immune system. And that's going to take energy away from growth. So in these conditions, it's not unusual for calves to actually lose some of their birth weight and actually take, you know, a good few days, even a week to 10 days to regain Their birth weight. So, calf jackets, I think, is something that can certainly help just, you know, reduce those energy requirements that they need just to keep themselves warm. Um, You know, when you're using calf jackets, it's just some really important things to remember. Um, Ideally, they should be washed at high temperatures at 60 degrees, and that's really important to kill any Cryptosporidium eggs. Um, it's also important as well that as a calf grows, that you adjust the straps on the jackets just to make sure that they don't um, rub anywhere. And so they're not uncomfortable. The other thing as well is when uh, you come to remove the jacket, it's best to take it off early in the morning and not later on in the day. So they're a bit more acclimatized to the temperatures that day before they go into the colder nighttime.
2: Yeah.
0: Just just one point on that to pick up as well. Uh, ab- absolutely it's the the hygiene of the calf jackets is um one of the challenges and and, and Cryptosporidia is is really, really easy to spread. Therefore, um that's that's a potential pitfall of them, uh, which we need to make sure that they are clean when they go onto an individual calf. Um was we, just looking at some of the temperature data for our igloos at Crichton. Um And um, David Bell, one of uh, our colleagues, recorded all the temperature data from within the igloos for a whole 12-month period. And um, certainly in the depths of winter, December, January time uh, in this particular year, then calves were below their lower critical temperature virtually all the time, uh, just given the ambient temperatures that were there. Um, Really interestingly, even if you go to late summer, August-September time, um, then roughly 25% of their time, they were below the lower critical temperature, even at that time of year. Obviously, years will differ and locations will differ. Uh, but you know, certainly at this time of year, it's a big, big challenge. And, and even at uh, um, some of the shoulders of the year um, in the autumn and the spring it, it is a significant challenge as well. So um, de- definitely one to definitely one to bear in mind i think the other things is just around creating a microclimate for these calves keeping them warm is the critical factor uh in terms of respiratory disease risk um keeping them clean keeping them warm so creating a microclimate is really really important um if the straw is sufficiently deep that when they're lying in it you can't see their legs um, and they can really nest in that straw um that makes a big difference. I think another one, depending on the shed layout as well, is if you're putting individual pens in together, uh, is 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 to move those pens in by maybe you know half a meter from the outside wall, because the outside wall is always cold, and you just by bringing them in by uh, a small distance will help keep carbs warmer. So there's there's lots of things that can be done to help improve. Um, the, the the warmth of calves at this time of year, um, but but it's definitely something to focus on. Um, and you know, yes, ventilation is important in, in, in ensuring that we don't get massive buildups of stale air and and very very moist air. Yes, really important. But keeping them warm is also equally important, if not more so. It's
2: a funny one, isn't it? Because in adult cows, we're, we're not we're certainly temperature. We're not really worried. You know, the critical temperature is really low, yeah. and and keeping that cow basically keep it, if you he keep her dry she'll, she'll stand anything but into that baby calf it's really um, you know it's a pretty vulnerable wee animal there and what what I wonder I suppose is the that lower critical temperature if we go below it are we impacting growth rates are we also impacting welfare you know is that, that cold calf if we give it a wee bit of extra milk powder a deep bed of straw well I assume if we do all that that, that calf's perfectly comfortable in, in a, a colder day yeah
0: we we must be impacting welfare in that we don't like to be cold yeah. if we're standing around, and I know that's an anthropomorphism, but we, we must be impacting welfare to some degree. We're, we're certainly impacting growth performance, and we're significantly increasing respiratory disease risk uh, in, in that you've got a compromised calf that you know once the pathogens are there, um, they're more susceptible to them. And I think on that one. We need to be thinking, you know, every farm is slightly different in terms of the pathogens that they have, Um, and, you know, that is then reflected in the health plan and the diagnostics that will be done in terms of trying to work out what bugs are there and how we can Prevent them through vaccination, et cetera, et cetera. But really, with respiratory disease, we're dealing with a pathogen soup. um, And and we pretty much have to assume that a good proportion of the common viruses and bacteria that cause pneumonia are likely to be there on most farms um, and and that they're going to be there as a matter of course. Therefore, we need to really just look at all of the other factors that we can put in place to try and minimize the, the sort of compromise of that calf and maximize their chances.
1: I think the important thing to touch on is really um, the feeding of milk uh, for that young calf. So not just thinking about how much calf milk replacer are they getting, but also, you know, how quickly are we building them up to you know their maximum intake, especially in that first couple of weeks of life. And um, so, yeah, certainly at colder temperatures and at, even at 10 degrees, um, it's estimated that calves that are under 45 kilos do need around a 1,000 grams of calf milk replacer to grow up 0.8 kilos a day, which, which really should be the target for Holstein, Frisian calves on the milk phase. So little things you can do um, if your sort of summer summer uh, feeding rate of milk replacer is a 12.5% inclusion, then it's good practice to step that up to 15% inclusion over the winter period. Um, also just work out, you know, how many litres are you feeding at that inclusion? So how many grams of milk replacer are we getting into these calves? So what we do at Crichton in the first uh, week of life when the calves are in their individual hutches, um, after they've had their one feed of colostrum, which is generally about four litres or 10% of their birth weight, their second feed is milk replacer. So those first seven days, they're getting three litres twice a day. So they're on six litres of milk replacer at 15% inclusion and then after that first week of life when they move on to the automatic feeders and they're fully trained then they're up to 7 litres maximum so that takes them just over a 1, 1,050 grams of milk replacer so how quickly you build those calves up to their maximum allocation is going to be really important to ensure that they've got sufficient energy to keep them warm but also it's not going to compromise their growth rates as well
2: we We sometimes hear about the, you know, adding additional milk can create a nutritional scour. Is that, is there truth in that, Colin, or is that?
0: Yeah, I was going to come in on this because I totally agree with Lorna in that the, the quicker we can build them up to their full allocation, the better. Um, And and people are worried about doing that because of creating a nutritional scour uh, and and increasing the chances of a nutritional scour. So they're worried about building them up over time. So it depends a little bit on the feeding system, I would say. Um, And, you know, if they are on a bucket fed twice daily system, uh, then, you know, there is chances is that we can get overspill of milk into the rumen if they drink large volumes too quickly. Uh, if they're on an automatic feeding system that allows them to take multiple feeds a day and they're suckling, then their chances are much lower. But I would I would probably leave you with these couple of thoughts. I, I think by far and away, uh, the bigger risk of scour in those first week or two of life is from an infectious cause, something like cryptosporidia. Um, the second thing is, is, is that we can we can weight the chances in our favor of reducing nutritional scour by uh you know using teats to feed rather than buckets, so even if you're on a bucket fed system is is with buckets and teats rather than drinking out of a bucket. I think that really really helps the calves can can suck rather than drink um and that reduces the risks or an automatic feeding system and even perhaps if we're using a bucket fed system is to um Stage the feeds So, you know, perhaps go down a row of calves and give them a litre and then go down a row of calves and give them the rest of their feed for that particular time point so that we're actually staging the feeds so that they don't overface themselves too quickly. One point of caution is, is that we do see problems with what we would call rumen drinking which is, is rumen overspill of milk or rather milk overspill into the rumen uh, where it starts to then ferment. And that can be a serious issue for a calf because that fermentation produces a lot of acid, which actually compromises the calf further and actually increases the risk of more milk ending up in the rumen. So it is a real risk for that calf, uh, but you know there are good management steps that can be used to avoid it. And, and the main thing is, is to try and go for teat feeding rather than bucket feeding, whether that's you know automatically or otherwise and that will help yeah no but without without doubt is 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 try and get them up to their full allocation as quickly as you can and and bear in mind that you know probably a suckle calf on its mother albeit with lots of little feeds will drink uh, you know 12 to 15 liters a day um uh, and you know we're, we're very much holding back these dairy calves i'm not saying we need to feed 12 to 15 liters but we we, we need
2: to be ensuring that we get a good amount of milk into them so basically keep, we keep them clean dry warm and keep their bellies as full as we can and and yeah it's pretty all else should be yeah. um, should be fine um so moving on the milk prices lorna the, the world's changing a bit so we've all of a sudden, um, milk prices seem to be heading in the right direction. That being said, costs are also heading probably in the wrong direction. Are you able to give us a wee bit of an update on what the outlook is for for dairy in the next few months?
1: Yeah, certainly. Yeah, milk prices have been rocketing up. There's a number of processors that have announced uh, price rises for January in the region of between two to three percent. So. Within Scotland with the main milk buyers uh, and for farmers that are not on an aligned supermarket contract, they're looking at a milk price now somewhere between 32 to 35 pence a litre. Uh, And if you're very lucky to have a Marks and Spencers contract, they've just announced a price rise for January, which takes their milk price up to 37.19 pence. So, I mean, these are all time high milk prices that we're seeing. But if we consider the increase in inputs um and the the significant rise in fertilizer we've seen in the last few months, but feed's also really expensive, barley is well over two hundred pound a ton, and um, you know an increases in energy costs as well. I think the farmers would say these are increases they're all needed, they really are and if we look at sort of cost of production figures from some of the retailer aligned um supermarket contracts that carry out cost of production work and aim to pay their farmers a price based on their cost of production, their cost of production are coming out round about 33 pence. Um, I I don't see this changing anytime soon. Um, Kite Consulting uh, published a recent report um, and they suggested that for the 2022-23 milk season, they said break-even cost of production is going to be between 33 to 34 pence. So to be fair, the milk price... Figures sound great at the moment, but it's all needed. And there's certainly rumours that they could hit even 40 pence by March. So we probably were quite short of milk in the country at the moment. And it's also a similar uh, case on the continent as well. Um, If you look at the AHDB milk deliveries uh, data that they publish on a weekly basis, uh, milk deliveries in uh, Great Britain are back about just over 4%. At the moment, compared to the same time last year, and production's really been pretty static. I would have said since about July, uh, and really, this is just on the back of rising farm input costs. Farmers haven't been wanting to throw too much concentrates at cows to try and increase milk output, just because of the cost. Um, but I think the pro- the processors are certainly keen to try and get a bit more milk. So spot milk at the moment is trading about forty seven to fifty pence per litre delivered, although it's only quite small volumes that are being traded at the moment. Um, So, yeah, I think certainly more milk is needed and processor costs are going up, but they're also trying to help the farmers as well with their higher input costs. And I think the one thing that might just end up curtailing prices, it's really down to the retailers and, you know, whether they want their consumers to pay more for their products. So really what we're seeing is a bit of resistance from the retailers to pass on these extra costs to their customers. Um, You know, they always want to have the cheapest milk or the the cheapest products in the supermarket. So I think that's just been one of the stumbling blocks at the moment. And, you know, we have heard rumours that some processors are considering holding supplies. Um, And, you know, they are giving price rises back to their farmers, but they've got no guarantee of actually getting that back from the market yet. So it's be quite a precarious situation at the moment but there's no doubt about it that the Farmgate milk price is probably still needing to to rise yet for farmers to make a good you know to make a good return and have money to invest to invest in their business
2: it's really interesting times in, in general across all sectors you know we are as as primary producers seeing massive inflation in what what we are doing and, and thankfully most are seeing inflation in what they're selling as well but that as you say has not reached the consumer yet and i don't know what happens in the spring you know it has to get passed on to the consumer and food is going to have to get more expensive and, and that's something that's certainly not a it's not a vote winner it's not something that any retailer or, or politician would be subscribing to but there's no there's no way of squaring that circle if we look at um feed prices for as uh, for one but then add in fuel and fertilizer the other two of the, the the three f's the old three f's we used to talk about you know there's there's no no way other than farm gate prices being higher and prices on the shelf being higher as well
1: i think it's interesting when, you, when we think about the fertilizer price i mean nitrogen's is around about 700 pound a ton and you know you know, a lot of farmers must be thinking, you know, can I afford to use less fertilizer? You know, if some people are in a really good position that they've got plenty of silage stocks and they're going to have a bit of, you know, carryover stock into next winter, then it maybe is a bit of a debate about whether they can get away with using less fertilizer. But you've got to think potentially about the knock-on effect as in, will you have enough silage stocks for the following winter as well if you cut back on what you're putting on your silage ground? And it could end up actually being false economy if you have to buy in more forages and feed for next winter so i think you have to ask yourself the question you have to ask the question can you afford not to not to buy fertilizer
2: i've been framing it that way to to clients basically as the the second second most expensive thing you can buy next year is fertilizer the dearest thing you can buy next year is silage. you know if we're if we're in a if we're all spreading less and there's less Potentially less production out there or almost certainly less production. Not filling the pit this year is a really, really bad move or a, a really dangerous move. So I, I suppose with that in mind, it brings us on to this year. So we're, we need to play the field that's in front of us just now as well. So with in terms of forage, we spoke about measuring pits and things in a, a previous podcast. But do you want to say something, Lorna, about where, where we should be at or what, what we can do to maybe assess supplies at the moment and, and make sure we've got enough to get to the spring and, and meet your summer needs as well.
1: Yeah it's pretty much the same message in terms of you know calculating what you've got and making sure that you're not you're not going to run short and if you are it's a case of do something about it sooner rather than later um, and then the longer you leave it the more radical diet changes are going to be uh, and potentially you know feeds and forages potentially will it increase in price as the as the winter goes on and um, and your drastic changes are always going to more likely upset performance and milk output as opposed to doing a gradual change now but it's just thinking about things like you know how much silage like bales or blocked from the pit do you use a day and trying to work out whether you've got enough that way or thinking about have you got more or less silage than what you'd have had this time last year um, and it, it just, I think it just highlights the importance as well of, you know, making sure that you've got analysis of all the forages on your farms, know what the dry matter is, and then with your nutritionist, um, you know, get your rations um sorted so that you know the forage demand for the different classes of stock you've got on the farm and, and work it out that way. And if there is going to be a surplus, then, you know, it gives you a bit of choice as to think, well, you know, you're obviously going to keep the best quality forage for. Uh, the milking herd first of all and, and then obviously the young stock and then it's an opportunity to either sell poorer quality stuff or maybe keep it for dry cows for next winter but it's knowing what you've got and trying to make the most of it.
2: I think what I can see certainly in, in this area you know we were short of silage at first cut time we were there was a lot of additional cuts taken later in the year and, and there's certainly a lot of you know first and second cuts are fairly similar to each other they're dry they're generally high in energy low in protein but when we get into those third fourth and even fifth cuts there's some real diversity of analysis out there and, and having that relationship with a nutritionist or somebody there that you can that can help with the transition from one to the next eh, or, or or how to mix these to to, to complement each other best eh, I think has probably never been more important.
1: Yeah absolutely and I think you know if if you are looking at changing pits it's just important to get that Analysis of that pit before you actually open it, so you can almost like preempt what your ration changes are going to be, so that we can try and maintain production as best as possible. But it's also just making sure that we're not overfeeding or using more expensive feed than we actually need to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think from our point of view on that as well. I mean, one of the common investigations that we get involved with with dairy cows is 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 milk drop or you know outbreaks of uh, diarrhea or loose feces and yeah the question really with a lot of that is is it is it infectious or is it nutritional and is it around a diet change in terms of how that's going um, and obviously everyone can be different you have got to keep an open mind on these things but a lot of them are down to nutritional changes uh, through the winter, in terms of of how the cow adjusts to that, or the cows adjust to
2: that. Yeah, and and can some of those nutritional issues, Colin, can they then lead into a wider issue? You know, can 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 that start potentially? Yeah,
0: but potentially, yeah. In that, you know, there are certainly, for example, a couple of examples is you know some of the. Some of the Salmonelli, for example, tend to be opportunists. To, that they're in the environment. If everything's going well uh, with those cows in terms of health management, performance, then you know the cow can cope. If if something goes wrong, then she's more likely to get ill. Um, uh, another example would just be, you know, if you're in a dirtier environment. You know, not surprisingly, m- mastitis risk goes up. And, and we've seen that in association with these diet changes as well. Um, cell count increases and that sort of thing. So there will be trade-offs uh, potentially. And you know, always the standard question that I would ask, it comes back to actually, you know, these cows that are having milk drop, is it a whole herd issue or is it an individual cow issue? Uh, um, are the cows sick? Do they have temperatures or do they not? And, and those are the sort of discussions to have with your vet about, and your nutritionist and really in terms of thinking is this a is this a, a diet management change issue or is it more likely to be an infectious disease thing and there can be some overlap between the two.
2: Yeah, awesome. So plenty to keep in mind anyway. Um, I think we'll probably just wrap up at that. Um, so a big thank you to you both um, for your time and certainly uh, look forward to speaking to you all again uh, in the new year. So all the best.